Our sermon text for today is in Daniel. We're in chapter 3, reading verses 1 through 33. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors and counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that he had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all of the peoples heard the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and the bagpipe and every kind of music, all of the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews they, de they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps and prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not held any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's take a moment to pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the moments that you give us to come, to be together to sing songs of praise and worship to you, to exalt you with our voices and now to hear from your word. We pray that this morning we would hear from you. 
we thank you uh, again for your servant, Paul. We pray that you would bless him. We pray that you would encourage him. We pray that you would give him great wisdom. God, we are so thankful. We sit in your presence this morning. We rest in your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Ian, for the reading of God's word. Uh, This chapter, like the whole book, is about the sovereign reign of God. It's about a God who is in heaven, and it's about what you will do with that God who reigns in heaven. In this particular story, we are very familiar with the reference to the three boys. And it seems to dominate every time we come to this chapter, the, uh, the focus that we have. And it's because it is probably one of the most well-known biblical accounts of faith. And it's also um, a very encouraging biblical account of faith for God's people. Yet I wonder if we will see what is right before our eyes, because not only is it an illustration of how one worships the sovereign God of heaven, but it's also about how the sovereign God of heaven is working to bring about those who rebel against him into his family. It's an epic struggle that we have revealed here for us between Nebuchadnezzar and God. It's a struggle that began back in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, when Nebuchadnezzar went after Jerusalem and thought he had conquered it, but God, in his brilliant wisdom, said, No, I'm going to place four of my young men in your court, O king. It's about how living faithfully in Babylon is a means through which God brings about the salvation of those that he is drawn, drawing to himself. It's about how you and I, as we live faithfully in Babylon, this world in which we live, serve as lights in this dark world around us to draw people out of that darkness into God's light. It's a story about how those far away from God are brought to God. It's a story about how God reveals himself and his truth to a king. It's about how the king rejects the revelation of God and sets out to prove that God is really all bark and no bite. It's a story of how the king of how a king on earth sets about to deny that there is a God in heaven. This chapter is full of epic conflicts. It's an illustration of how the sinful heart of man says to God, I will not submit to you. You will not speak into my life. And some of you here this morning know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you are on the other side of that battle, and you have finally resolved that there is a God of heaven, and you will worship that God. And some of you are right now in the midst of this battle and are saying in your heart, there is no God and he will not control my life. The story begins with what I have called king-size rebellion. And it's rebellion of the nature that suits the king of the whole world. All of us are familiar with a certain amount of rebellion, particularly against God, but few of us can rebel in the same way that King Nebuchadnezzar did. God would not have his way in his life, or so he thought. Sometimes the obvious is missed. You might have noticed the the frequent use of the word statue, or some of your versions might say image. And that picks up a word that is used five times in chapter 2 when Daniel reveals to Nebuchadnezzar his dream and recounts to him an image that he saw. That same word image that is used to describe the 
interpretation of the king's dream in chapter 2 is used to describe 11 times the image that Nebuchadnezzar has now set up on the plain of Dura. Same word, same idea, different look. Here the image is 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Kind of distorted and gross, but that's the size of it. But the connection is not just in the word alone. It's also in deed. Daniel had described in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that there was an image that he saw that was made of four metals, gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And it was the interpretation that part of that reality was that there was no eternal kingdoms, that all human kingdoms would come to an end and they would replace, be replaced with an eternal kingdom, which was not of this earth. A stone, which is Christ, would come to earth that was not made with any human hand, and eventually that kingdom would grow and grow until the whole earth worshipped it. You might remember when God or Daniel um, was interpreting the dream, he said to the king, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. Is it just a coincidence then that Nebuchadnezzar goes out and builds a whole statue of gold? What do you think he was trying to say by building it entirely of gold? It was pure and simple an act of defiance. It was pure and simple his way of saying, God, your word will not work in my life. It's his way of saying, I am king and I'm going to prove it. This is truly king-sized rebellion. Nebuchadnezzar, by building this statue all of gold, was declaring war on the God of heaven and on his word. He wanted it to be known that there would be no after this to his kingdom, that his kingdom was the only kingdom, and that his kingdom would last forever, and so he made the whole image out of gold. Again, it was his way of saying, Daniel's God will never bring an end to my kingdom. You add to this the reality that his goal was, I really think, although it's difficult to prove, that he was trying to drive the world back to Babel and the Tower of Babel. And it was another act of defiance where God had said, you are to scatter and go across the earth and populate it. Nebuchadnezzar was defying that, and he was bringing all of the people to himself. His goal was one religion, one people, all united under himself. And some suggest that this plain of Dura, where the statue was, was actually in Shinar. I don't know if you can prove that, but I think that what he is trying to do is reverse the curse of Babel. It was quite an assembly of people. I don't know if you listened. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices. It is a sorry state when the judges of our countries bow before the leaders of our country. The magistrates and all the officials of the province gathered for a dedication, and the herald proclaimed, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. This is all the known earth to bow down and worship this statue. The United Nations is nothing new, and neither is the intent behind their gathering then or now. The message of Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely clear. King Nebuchadnezzar set up this image. 
it was his idea, it was at his command, and it was him strutting his stuff. He was saying, what God will ever stand in my way? It's an amazing journey that God is working, though, on in Nebuchadnezzar's knife, the most powerful man on the earth. And it's a journey, I believe, that is worked out again and again in the lives of men and women all across the world and in your life and in my life. As God pulls us out of our rebellion against him into submission to him. It started, as I said, in chapter 1 with God placing four of his people in the very heart of the king's rebellion. Who would ever thought that four Jewish teenagers would serve in the court of the most powerful pagan king in the world? In chapter 2, the king is now confronted with the reality of the God of heaven. Well, maybe more accurately, the God of Nebuchadnezzar, or the God of Daniel and his three friends. But it's clear that he wasn't persuaded, even though Daniel was able to give him his dream and interpret it, he still wasn't persuaded. Amused, maybe, awed just a little bit, but persuaded, not in the least. His actions describe what many people say about Christian faith today and their witness of it. Well, that may be good for you, and that may be helpful for you, but it's not for me. And now in chapter 3, we see the extent of this resistance. And I think you might know it firsthand, or you certainly see it in the lives of others. When people are being sought by God, they put up a fight. They rebel, and they resist. They build statutes to declare their authority and their power over God. They set out to disprove God's power, his word, and his authority in their life. They are defiant. They have a point to prove. They rebel and they say, no God is going to have his way in my life. Come to verses 8 to 15 and we are back to a theme that we've come across already. Babylon is not your friend. I hope we understand that, loved ones, and I hope when we understand and we're talking about Babylon, you remember that when I use the word Babylon, I'm not just referring to the city of Babylon. I'm referring to a theme that goes through the Bible, that Babylon is the counter to the new Jerusalem, that Babylon signifies everything and every way of living and every way of thinking that is opposed to God, where Jerusalem or the new Jerusalem describes everything that comes under the submission of and authority of God. So Babylon is not your friend. And you see that in verses 8 to 12. The Chaldeans come before the king. Remember, these are the men that uh, Daniel had so graciously not thrown under the bus. These are men that Daniel had just saved their lives a period of time earlier by giving the dream, uh, the king his dream and his interpretation. And as a result, they weren't all kings killed. Daniel could have said, those bunch of idiots, king, couldn't do anything just to moat them all, but he does nothing of the kind. And so the very few, or the very people that Daniel had saved are the same people now that are out to destroy his three companions. It seems like they were watching these guys. They were waiting for a mistake. They were just hoping that they would slip up somewhere along the line so they could pounce on them. I don't know if you feel that sometimes in your place of work or at home or with your friends or at school, that people are just waiting for you to slip up so they can mock your faith. 
How is it that these three were saved or spotted so quickly in the midst of thousands of people before this idol? They came forward with a malicious accusation against the Jews. I think it was racially driven. People hated the Jews, and they hated them back then. They still hate them today. There's this animosity to the Jewish people. And behind that was envy and jealousy. How is it that these three captives, these Jews, could be in the king's presence, serving the king, being rewarded by the king, and we're just toughing it out in the background? So they approached the king, and they feigned admiration of the king. There are certain Jews, and I'm sure they said that with a little bit of emphasis. There are certain Jews, O king, whom you have appointed over the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods, and they do not worship the image that you have set up. They couldn't have said it in a way more forcefully that would have enraged the king. And that's exactly the result that I got. It says that the king's fury was now spent on these young boys. Proverbs 16, 14 says the king's fury is a messenger of death. Here the king is now in the midst of his own rebellion, and he's confronted by three young boys who are rebelling against him. And there's nothing that makes you matter that when you're trying to do something, somebody does it back to you. And the king was furious. And it seems like the intimidation that these Christians are facing is just getting worse. In Daniel chapter 1, it was sort of a positive intimidation. Daniel just comes into the king's presence with all its awe, all its majesty, all its glory, all its gold, all its immense size, the live lions on either side of his throne, and Daniel is there telling the king he can help him. Well, now we have three Hebrew boys before a raging king, plotting Chaldeans on one side, a burning furnace in full view, a massive gold statue behind him, an audience of hundreds, if not thousands of people, a worship team rehearsed and ready to go, and a merciless command repeated by the king. What do you say? Do what I say, or you'll be roasting Hebrews round an open fire. Oh, and one last thing, guys. What God is there that can deliver you from my power. It's a staggering statement which reveals his worldview and a worldview that's all around us today. But in the light of that, we find faithful obedience and relentless, even under relentless pressure. Not all conflicts that you and I are going to face as young men and women or older men and women living in Babylon are going to be this blatant idolatry or death. These young men had a choice to make. Would they obey God or would they obey man? God had clearly said, you shall not worship any other God in Exodus 23. And so the question is, would they rebel? Would they justify bowing down? There must have been a lot of voices speaking in them. Well, come on. We know that outside you might be bowing down, but inside you're really still worshiping God. And after all, where are the rest of the Jews? It looks like they're all bowing down because you're the only three standing up. 
There must have been all kinds of pressure to bear on these young men to not bow down before the statue that the king had made. But beautifully, they remain standing. Isn't there a song, I'm still standing? That's all the line I know, but it just comes to my head. They're the ones that are standing, and they're full of faith. It's an expectant faith, but it's a submissive faith. Verses 17 and 18 have caused uh, translators just a, a little bit of trouble because of the, the, the way the, 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 the language is um, worded and the type of verbs that are used. I find uh, the, the Holman Christian Standard probably at least the most accurate from my mind. Verse 17 is a response to the king's, who is the God that can rescue you from my power? And so they say, if the God we serve exists, then he can save us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of the king. See, their response is, first and foremost, it's a challenge to the king about the reality and the power of God's. The king is basically saying there is no such thing as God's because I am the ultimate power. And in fact, that is the worldview all around us today. It's a materialistic worldview. It's a naturalistic worldview that says there are no gods. And if they are, they certainly have no impact on the day-to-day -day affairs of mankind. And it's their statement about the power of God. They know their God. They know the character of their God. And their God, they'd say, is able to deliver them from the fiery furnace and from the hand of the king. It's a statement about their confidence in the power of God and the omnipotence of God. They were convinced of this, that their God was sovereign. It's as though they said, I'll take my chances with my God, O king. Their faith is in the power of God. But I hope you don't forget verse 18 or that you combine verse 18 in a full definition of faith because verse 18 is a necessary balance. They said, but even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have made. The second part of this verse really affirms their conviction their conviction is firmly rooted in the fact that God had spoken and that God had revealed to them that they should worship no other gods. But it also expresses their submission to God, which I so appreciate. There is no doubt in their minds about the power of God. Their, their, their whole history and their lives had been evidence of God's ability to do amazing things on behalf of his people but it expresses their submission to that God. You see, I'm, after all, I'm not sure that, that there weren't a lot of Jews praying that Nebuchadnezzar would not see even succeed in capturing, uh, capturing Jerusalem. And that prayer wasn't answered, but nonetheless, it was still God's will that they go into captivity. And so regardless of the outcome, they submitted themselves to the will of of God. I think that's what biblical faith looks like, loved ones, as we pray and as we strive and as we seek, seek things. Our faith is in God. 
And all that we know about God, his mercy, his grace, his power, his might, his goodness, his wrath, our faith is in God. But we submit to the will of God as it is worked out in the issues of our life. And so we are left with the king's words ringing in our ears and theirs. And who is the God that can rescue you from my power? Which is really his way of saying, who is the God that can rescue you from me? Verses 19 to 23 are a clear reminder that God is with us. See, one of the major lessons, I think, that, that God... Um, uh, had attempted to teach Nebuchadnezzar through his dream was that his power had a time limit to it. That there would come a time when he would die and he would lose his kingdom and somebody else would sit on a throne of a different kingdom. That there would be em empires after his. And that knowledge had really ticked him off. I, I wonder if, again, perhaps that had subconsciously caused him to build this statue all of gold as his way of trying to defy the truth that he had heard from the God of Daniel. But now, not only was he being faced with the fact that the tenure of his power was limited, but the exercise of his power was also limited. Because here are three young men whom he had no power over. And when kings rage, anything can happen. It says in verse 13, if you notice that, that not only was he mad, but now it says he was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody that mad. Some of you probably have, where their whole bodily features change. I have a personal theory about anger. Many of you might have the same theory. It's from my own life, and it's also from talking with other people who struggle with anger, and particularly men, it seems. But men aren't the only ones who wrestle with anger. But I believe that anger is significantly connected with power. And power, powerlessness produces anger. When we lose control over things, we get angry. When we can't control our spouse, we get angry. When we can't control our children, we get angry. When we can't control the circumstances around us, we get angry. And here it's illustrated. These three young men dare to challenge the authority of the king, and that threw him into a rage. And while he was really angry at these three boys, he was ultimately angry at God. See, this king is in a massive battle against God. He's just unwilling to submit to God. And I, I do think that a lot of anger that people experience, that even though they might not be able to articulate it, is directed to God because ultimately they're ticked at God because God isn't doing what they want him to do in their life. So he says, heat up the furnace. Get my strongest men, bind them. Fascinating, his view of life. He didn't give a rip that they died as long as his authority was carried out. And he thought, there's no way that these three boys are going to live. It didn't take long for the king to realize that something was not just right. It says that he jumped up 
in alarm. It's hard to experience this. It's, it's easy for us to just kind of detach ourselves from a story like this, but to actually try and get ourselves into this story and imagine what it must have been like for that king to all of a sudden see what's going on. He'd issued a challenge that he thought there was no human way that it ever could have been met. After all, he thought, life and death is in my hands. I'm the one who determines who lives and who dies. But there's some funky math going on here. He says to the people around him, well, didn't we just throw in three? He says, I see four. And he says, didn't we bind them all up? And they're walking around. They're unbound. And they're safe. They're not hurt. And the fourth one seems to have the appearance of, the, of, of, of a son of God, of the gods. I don't think it's crucial that we know the identity of the fourth person. There's difference of opinion on who the fourth person might be. I think all it, it matters is that God was with them. In one way or another, God was with them in this trial. And the words of Isaiah written a few hundred years earlier were true. For fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame will not consume you. I don't know, but I like to think that maybe those young boys knew about that word of Isaiah. And that they were just wondering, God, maybe this will be the day. This will be the day when you deliver us in the midst of fire. It's pretty a confident faith that these guys have. The Lord did protect them. The Lord was with them. They were not consumed. The inspection confirmed this. No effect on their bodies. Not a hair on their heads was singed. Their clothes were unaffected. They didn't even smell like smoke. Pretty amazing deliverance. And so in response, the king does a couple things. First of all, he breaks out into praise. It's a doxology of some sorts. He acknowledges the intervention of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that his angel had saved them, that their own God had been able to save them. But I hope you notice in there, it doesn't move him to acknowledge the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's just an opportunity for him to acknowledge that there was something at work that he hadn't recognized before. And he follows that up with the decree. He simply says, I don't want anybody in all my nation, basically in all the world, to talk bad about this God. Or if you do, you're going to die. It's pretty amazing, isn't it, that this king, just his solution to everything was, if you don't do what I say, you're going to die. A lot of us wish we had that kind of power. Um, uh, it's pretty amazing power, actually. And unfortunately, there have been enough people in this world that have had that power. And the results have been devastating. But surprisingly, the king answers his own question from verse 15. Who is the God that is, is there a God that is able to save you? And, and he says here, there is no God that is able to deliver like this. But his heart is still unchanged. How can that be? 
How can it be that somebody can witness such amazing acts of God, his power, his might, and remain unaffected? How can it be that one can see that kind of stuff and their heart just go colder and harder? Well, we certainly see it in the life of Pharaoh, didn't we? He will acknowledge the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, but nothing more. What a wonderful faith you have, guys. What a wonderful God you serve, guys, but he's not for me. It's speculation now, but I wonder what happened to the image. Did it stay standing for weeks, months, maybe even years? Did he leave it standing sort of as a last-ditch attempt to put forward the Babylonian spirit? And the fact that he had promoted the three boys didn't make up for his earlier attempt to murder them. He simply still will not acknowledge God, and he will not admit to his sin. See, what I see happening in Nebuchadnezzar's life is what I see happening in far too many people around us. It's spiritual diversion without spiritual conversion. It's a recognition of the power of God without a submission to the power of God. Nebuchadnezzar had experienced something of God, and yet he would not still submit to God. He had just recently worshipped Daniel, recognized the power of his God, and it all happens again. He's shaken and stirred, but he's not renewed. His heart only seems to harden further. There's a story in John Owen which illustrates the difference between spiritual diversion and true conversion. John Owen says, As a traveler, in his way, meeting with a violent storm of thunder and rain, immediately turns out of his way to some house or tree for his shelter. But yet this doesn't stop him from giving up his journey, for as soon as the storm is over, he returns to his way and progresses again. So it is with a man in bondage to his sin. They're in a course of pursuing their lusts, and the law meets with them, or the word of God, we might say, meets with them in a storm of thunder and lightning from heaven, terrifies and hinders them in their way. This turns them for a season out of their course. They will run to prayer or amendment of life for some shelter from storm of wrath, which is feared coming upon their consciences. But is their course stopped? Are their principles altered? No, not at all. So as soon as the storm is over, they begin to wear out that sense of terror that was on them, and they return to their former course of sin again. Nebuchadnezzar had experienced amazing divine realities. He had tasted of the things of the Lord, but he was a stranger to true conversion. As we think about this in conclusion, quickly, two things. I'm amazed at the sovereign God that is working behind the scenes described in this chapter. It's the God that's described in Romans 8 in a verse that we often refer to, that God is working all things together for his good. I really do see this in this chapter, and we'll see it next week as we come to chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar does finally bow his knee to God. But God was not only working in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, he was working in the lives of these three young boys. And the second thing is God has promised to give us grace and help in the time of our need. You think about this story, and it, it, it's frustrated me a little bit in my own thinking, just where my head's gone. But there might be a tendency for us to think, well, the story like this is so many thousands of years ago, and it's so remote, and 
it's so far from my everyday experience. And so we kind of just write it off and say, well, it's a kind of a cool story. But I think we ought to remind ourselves that every single one of us here who regularly follows Jesus as our Lord and Savior faces decisions every day that put our convictions to a test. And in fact, those convictions and those tests are at the very heart of the gospel itself. Will I submit to the God of heaven or will I not? Do I believe the God of heaven has revealed himself to me or do I not? Do I believe that I am the ultimate authority or do I believe that God is the ultimate authority? And loved ones, if we do conclude that there is a God and that he is the ultimate authority and he is sovereign over the affairs of our life, then we can come to him to receive grace and help in our time of need. May God help us wrestle through this stuff today. Father, thanks for your word and for this challenge in our hearts and lives about what it means to recognize and then respond to a sovereign God. For those here today who are in the shoes of Nebuchadnezzar, Father, would you work in them to finally bring them to yourself? For those of us who may be in the shoes of the three young men, would you give us the courage to stand for you, to have faith in who you are, but to trust you from the outcome of that faith? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Communion this morning, if you'd come and join us at the front. I just want to spend some time around the Lord's table today. And it is a... Uh, wonderful way to conclude our focus, I think, from Daniel chapter 3, to acknowledge the intervention of God into this world and into our hearts and into our lives. I was reading uh, this past week and have been reading in Leviticus, and Leviticus is one of those tough books, but I found it a very helpful outline. Um, at least the first seven verses, they describe how one approaches a holy God, and it's through sacrifice. And so you read again and again and again of burnt offerings and of fellowship offerings and of grain offerings and of free will offerings and the various ways in which people come back into relationship with God and enjoy fellowship with God. And the truth is that every one of those sacrifices has been fully met in Jesus Christ. He is our burnt offering. He is our grain offering. He is our fellowship offering. He is our free will offering. That God has satisfied, or Christ has satisfied everything we need to come back into God's presence and enjoy fellowship with him. So as we gather around this table today, just if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're in a relationship with God, just let your heart give thanks that you're not out there killing lambs. You're not out there offering doves. You're not out there mixing cakes to try and appease God. You simply trust in Christ and you're right with God.